May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. John Ortberg uh, says that uh, people in the church have basically three questions for their pastor, uh, usually about sex, about end times, or about whether or not there'll be sex in the end times. Uh, So this morning, I want to talk to you about great sex. I knew that would get your attention. Some of you are like, I can't believe, I can't believe our pastor is talking about sex. We don't talk about sex in the church. And that's the problem. Because we have not talked about sex in the church, a topic that the Bible addresses repeatedly. Culture has filled in the gaps for our kids. Telling them what great sex looks like. We have failed our kids. Many of whom are now adults trying to navigate sexual practice and identity outside of the truth-telling, grace-giving context of a local church. Why are we so afraid to talk about sex in the church? I mean, none of us would be here if it weren't for sex. It can't be that bad. And it's not a dirty word. Let's remember that sex was God's idea from the very beginning of creation. It's his idea. So it can't be bad. And yet I have to admit that this morning I have some anxiety. I think I've probably added at least 10 gray hairs hairs to my head this week because knowing that I'll be talking about sex, I am worried, concerned that uh, some of what I say might hurt uh, some of the people I love in here and out there. And so I've been praying really, 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 really hard, as some of you have with me, that all of us would experience this service as a gift from God. That we'd come away from this service not feeling condemnation, but liberation. Not shame, but grace. That's my prayer. So let's go to the garden and talk about great sex from the perspective of the garden. Before I actually look at the garden, God's word, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, let's just talk about sort of the popular uh, cultural view of great sex. So great sex according to culture, you know, movies, media, magazines, music, looks like this. Here's great sex according to the world. Uh, Somebody's at a conference, you're at a conference, and you uh, are at a hotel, and you go into the hotel bar, and you see a sexy stranger, and you begin to flirt with him or her. And you put forth not your true self, but your best self. And it doesn't take long before you're both back at your room, enjoying an evening of casual sex. There's no expectation, there's no commitment, there's no knowing or being known. And the world says that's great sex. Casual, anonymous sex. 
by the way, the results of great sex, according to the world, are uh, AIDS, sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies that lead to abortions and single-parent households, adultery, and shame. That's great. A metaphor, I think a good metaphor for culture's view of great sex is the cheap, disposable condom. That's a great metaphor for great sex according to the world. Great sex according to the garden, according to God, is very different. Let me just remind you what I've been telling you uh, every week. Genesis 1 and 2 presents God's divine design, his best intent, his ideal for humanity. And when Jesus came, I know that was lost in the fall, Genesis 3, but when Jesus came, Jesus came to swing the pendulum back to what it was like in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. And the way that we get back to the garden is through the church, by God's people embodying the values, not of Genesis 3, but of Genesis 1 and 2. And we do this in the area of sex as well. There's this beautiful passage in Genesis 2, verses 20 to 25. Let's put that up there. Um, Where God takes from the essence of the man stuff from which he makes another being like the man, equal to the man, a partner with the man, but somewhat different, the woman. And these two are called to become one flesh, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and sexually. And I love what it says in Genesis 2.25. I told you this is one of my favorite verses. I want to put it on a a bumper someday, but I won't because for obvious reasons. But the man and and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were vulnerable, open, no barriers, no fig leaves, nothing between them, completely honest and accessible to each other. What a beautiful verse. In some way, I think it's clear from Genesis that in some way, man and woman, husband and wife, two that are different but the same, having intimacy and unity somehow reflects the difference and the unity of the Trinitarian God we love. Three, yet one. I'm saying that husband and wife in the context of a lifelong pledge to love each other no matter what somehow reflects the nature and the beauty of a God who will not give up on us even if he finds wrinkles in saddlebags. <laughs> and to love someone for life in the context of marriage I mean, to lie down with someone, let me get real specific if I could, I mean, to lie down with someone, the same person, week in and week out, year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, someone to whom you made a promise before God and witnesses that you will love them and cherish them no matter what happens to their hair. 
If it falls out or goes gray, no matter how many wrinkles multiply or saddlebags form, no matter how many annoying habits you discover about this person you've pledged to love for as long as you both shall live, even if they snore, even if they leave the toilet seat up, even if they leave the cap just a little bit off the toothpaste so that when you squeeze it from the bottom, out comes the toothpaste and it drives you crazy. You've pledged to love that person for as long as you both shall live. And somehow that promise that pledge to love no matter what you discover in your spouse, to love not only the radiant Rachel, but the lackluster Leah in your spouse, somehow reflects the holy love of a God who will keep loving you and me, no matter how many wrinkles or saddlebags, failures or flaws he discovers in us. He'll love us for as long as we both shall live, which is forever (laughs) and that's great sex husband and wife in the context of marriage sleeping with the same person year after year after year decade after decade after decade it may sound dull to some people but to me it's incredibly meaningful to be known and fully known and yet still loved and to reflect that love physically and sexually it's a beautiful thing So if the uh, metaphor for culture's view of great sex is the cheap disposable condom, I would say that the metaphor for great sex according to the garden, according to God's word, is the priceless, precious, permanent wedding ring. It's a great image. So the moral of the story so far Sex is God's idea from the very beginning. In the context of marriage, a lifelong promise between a man and a woman. Scripture's clear on that. But the love story ends tragically. You know this. The paradise doesn't last. The paradise actually is lost. And it happens in Genesis 3 right away. You remember what happens. The man and the woman were not content with all of the fruit of all of the trees of the garden. So they had to go after the forbidden fruit. They lusted after the one tree from which they could not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And let me suggest that every, uh, every aspect of sexual immorality, every, every sin that results from sexual immorality is at root a problem with contentment. You're not content with your spouse. Sexual immorality surfaces. You're not content with God. Sexual immorality surfaces. It's the same problem that Adam and Eve had. A lack of contentment. You can have all the fruit from all the trees except one. (laughs) Why do we lust after forbidden fruit? And then we get that verse that I hate. It's my least favorite verse in Genesis. Genesis 3-7. When they ate from that forbidden fruit, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened and they realized for the first time they were naked. And so they, they put fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now there's no more vulnerability, there's no more openness, there's no more intimacy. Now there's barriers, deceit and lies and falsehood and double living that was not God's best intent for us. 
And now the world, the culture, has hijacked the gift of sex. And all throughout the New Testament, you see in Paul's writings, even in a lot of what Jesus said, that that, uh, sexual promiscuity and lust has become a big problem. Do a word search. The Greek word for uh, uh, unbridled lust is epithemia, which is an unbridled lust, a passion that ends up uh, controlling and destroying the person who has it. Another word in the New Testament that speaks to sexual immorality is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. It's any extramarital or unnatural sex outside of the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. Just to be clear, great sex, according to the garden, according to God's word, happens in the context of a marriage, a promise between a man and a woman for as long as they both shall live. Which is good that it takes forever because um, becoming one flesh spiritually and emotionally and physically takes a long time. I want to just point you to a passage from Paul that really captures this, the extremes of this, really. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 to chapter 7, verse 5. So here's what Paul says in the first part of the passage. He's writing to, by the way, not Jews, but Gentiles who have come out of the pagan world into, into the church. And one of the ways you worshiped in the pagan Gentile world was you went to the pagan temple and you had sex with temple prostitutes and that was totally appropriate. So you can, you can uh, do whatever you want with your body. You can have sex with whoever you wanted in the temple and, it, and they could call it worship. That's, how the, that's the world the pagans were coming out of. And the Corinthians were out of a pagan Gentile context. And so in the first part of that passage, uh, Paul is getting on these Corinthian Christians, because some of them are trying to live still with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It's not working out very well. They're doing stuff with temple prostitutes they ought not be doing. And Paul says, your body now belongs to Christ. It's not yours. And everything you do with your body matters. In a world where they taught that what you do with your soul and your spirit is what matters, what you do with your body doesn't, as Pastor Jared talked about way back a couple weeks ago. So Paul is basically talking to those who are libertine, doing whatever they want with whomever they want, using their body. And then he flips it in chapter 7. Right after he condemns the practice of having sex with any Tom, Dick, or Harry that you want to, uh, being libertine, using liberty, freedom, so they say, he then gets on those who are legalistic, who are coming into the church and being stuffy about sex actually denying their spouse sex. And Paul says, don't deprive your spouse of sex. And all men everywhere said, amen. Now you can fast and abstain for a season, but then come back together so that you don't burn with lust and fall into sin. So for those who are libertine, uh, and for those who were legalistic, Paul says, uh-uh. in between libertinism and legalism is love in the context of marriage. 
heard of a church leader one time saying, you know, as a kid, uh, as a teenager, I prayed and begged God to remove all passion and lust uh, and desire, sexual desire from me. And he said, thank God he didn't answer that prayer. Because <laughs> sex is a gift from God. So to those of you who are single, let me just tell you to keep your eyes out for uh, someone of the opposite sex who loves Jesus like you do, who wants to serve Jesus like you do, who has the character of Jesus Christ, and who, from your perspective, let's be honest, is a hottie or a honk or a stud muffin or a bodacious babe. And then when you find that person through discernment and prayer and counsel before God and witnesses who will hold you accountable, make the pledge. I will love you for as long as we both shall live. And then have as much sex with that person as you want to. 25 times a day if you want. Wherever you want. On the kitchen island, in the car, on the beach, in the shower, in the closet. Use discretion, but have fun. It's a gift to be enjoyed. It's time for the church of God to reclaim the gift of sex for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So let me be clear. Sex, when it's great, is between a man and a woman, husband and wife, in the context of marriage for as long as they both shall live. That's great sex. And it's meaningful. It's not dull. It's beautiful. Now let me offer uh, a quick shift from sex to sexuality. It's a terrible shift, I'm sorry, but we're going to talk about sexuality. In a group this size, there are probably a couple dozen people who have struggled with their sexual orientation. Let me just ask, let me just sort of poll you. How many of you know someone personally who is gay? Just raise your hand. How many of you know someone who's a Christian, committed to Jesus, but struggles uh, with same-sex attraction? It hits us all. So there are a lot of questions around sexuality. You know, is it, is it genetic? Is it biological? Is it environmental? Is it a choice? And maybe we'll get to some of those, but really the questions I want to wrestle with today are two questions. One is, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And two, uh, what is the proper response of the church to the homosexual? Those are the two questions I want to, I want to grapple with. And and to put some sort of flesh on this, because it's not just something we can come at purely objectively as if, as if people don't matter. No, there's, there's real people behind these struggles. I remember one of the hardest conversations I had in pastoral ministry uh, with someone. His name uh, was Jay. Uh, he was gay, and he started to attend the church I pastored in Pennsylvania. And he loved the church, and we loved having him there. One day he asked to meet with me, and I knew what he wanted to ask. He wanted to ask me what I thought about his homosexuality. I knew it was coming. And so there in my office, we sat across from each other, and um, Jay began to tell me that he was once married, 
had three kids, and then he left his family for the gay lifestyle, moved from New York to San Francisco. And when we met, his kids were adults, and he said, my kids hate me. They don't want anything to do with me. And he said, for years I had shame. And to escape the shame of my sexuality, I started to pop pills. I became a drug addict. And drugs just tore me apart. This guy, brilliant guy, PhD, but drugs just took the best out of him. Now he could barely put together a cogent thought because drugs had messed him up. He came to our church through our addiction recovery ministries. And so he was, he was basically telling me, Len, um, I have finally come to a place where I have been uh, uh, able to overcome my shame because I believe that God made me gay. And because I believe God made me gay, I'm able to overcome the shame that led to my addiction. And then he looked at me and said, uh, Pastor Lenny, what do you think? <laughs> oh my goodness. What does the Wesleyan Church believe about my homosexuality? One of the top three hardest conversations I've ever had in my life. I looked at Jay and I loved him and I, I took him back to the garden as best I could. Because in the garden, it's pretty clear that God's best intent, his ideal, is not man and man, but man and uh, woman, not woman and woman. Uh, same substance, just like Father, Son, and Spirit. Same substance, homoousia for you theologians, but different. Same, but different. And somehow, some way, husband and wife, different but the same in the context of marriage, reflects the nature and the glory of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, homoousia, the same substance but distinct from each other. And that's where I go. I have gay friends and family members whom I love. And I have wept with them and prayed for them and with them over the isolation and the shame and the ostracism they feel so often in their family and also in the church. And they have, many of them, wanted my endorsement, my support. And so with an open mind, I've asked them to give me a good reason to support them. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll read anything you want me to read. Uh, they'll send me to Bible passages that they think support their sexuality and we'll have conversations, and I think I'm a pretty open-minded person, and I've listened to the arguments, and I've read the arguments, and I want in the worst way to support them. But I've just not heard a biblically, theologically compelling reason to support homosexuality as a God-ordained, sanctioned way of life. I just haven't. Now, to be sure, I've also not heard a good biblical theological argument in support of greed or adultery or heterosexual lust or gluttony or racism or sexism or getting married and divorced and remarried as often as we buy cars. I also know that human beings are prone to view with more scrutiny and judgment the sins with which we ourselves do not struggle. 
That's my unspiritual gift. But the Bible's pretty clear all throughout. So you have Old Testament, you have New Testament. Let me just read you a few verses, uh, ones with which you're familiar. Leviticus 18.22, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. If a man lies, is Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. And then you get to the, uh, the New Testament, Romans 1. Um, in the same way uh, that men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, so men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 6, verses 9 to 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards. Just, I want you to notice something, though. Again, going back to what I said about judging with more scrutiny the sins with which we do not struggle, notice that there's a lot that comes before homosexuality and a lot that comes after. Like, if you, slu- if you struggle with greed and slander, you're put in the same boat. Okay? Now, nobody slanders in the local church. I mean, we would never do that. Sanctified slander. Pray for Jared because he's driving me crazy. You know, it's slander. We sanctify it by saying, pray for me. So again, summary. Uh, There is no compelling argument that I've heard to support homosexuality as a viable lifestyle in the eyes of God. I've not been convinced, but I am convinced of this. The church overall has not done a really good job of building redemptive bridges toward the homosexual and the homosexual community. We have put up barriers instead of building bridges, and we've betrayed the gospel of Jesus Christ in doing it. Because truth without grace is no truth at all. Jesus came from the Father, John 1.14. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so truth without grace is no truth at all, and grace without truth is no grace at all. We need both. So I want to offer some, just some core convictions. I have a lot of questions around this issue, but let me just offer some core convictions. And uh, take it as you will. First, homosexual proclivity is not a choice, but homosexual practice is. I don't know that anybody I've talked to who's gay has chosen to be gay, just like woke up one day and said, I want to be attracted to the same sex. It's just in them. Um, I like pizza with pepperoni. I didn't choose that. It's just it's a desire in me. So, and so even, even if there's the proclivity, uh, that's not a choice. The practice is, okay? Uh, hom- humanize, don't demonize the homosexual. This is important. Just whenever you're dealing with homosexuality, put a face to it. Imagine that the, the person who's homosexual is your son or daughter. And avoid demonizing the person. And homosexuality is not a result of God's creation, Genesis 1 and 2 but a result of humanity's fall, Genesis 3. 
And ever since then, there's been sexual brokenness with which probably 95% of us have been victim. All people can be liberated from homosexual practice even if the proclivity persists. So God might take away the desire, but He just might give you the grace, even with the desire, to abstain. Like, I was an alcoholic. You've heard my story. But there's still in me at times a desire for drink. God has not taken the desire away completely, but He's given me the grace to overcome. God loves the homosexual. And if we love God, we will love what God loves. Now make no mistake about it, God hates sexual sin. He does. There's no way around that. God hates homosexuality. But he loves the homosexual. God hates adultery. But he loves the adulterer. God hates divorce. It says it right in the Bible. But he loves the divorced. God hates pornography, but he loves the porn addicted. And some of you may be thinking, well, oh, come on, God. Give it to him. Why is God so stinking gracious? Thank God he is. Because God hates self-righteousness too. But he loves the self-righteous. God hates gluttony, but he loves the glutton. God hates oppression, but he loves the oppressor. You get the idea. I want to take a minute to, uh, to share, to give voice to, uh, to someone who is a Christian, committed, who struggles with uh, same-sex attraction. This is a friend of mine who attends uh, the Lakeview Wesleyan Church, and uh, this person has courageously agreed to uh, share their story through me. He writes, I've struggled with homosexuality since I was a young man. Growing up, I believed that this was not what God wanted for me but I was still confronted with my sinful desires and what I, as well as many others, believed to be the worst sin. I did not want anyone to know my failures, and so I kept this struggle to myself, isolating myself from others to spare them the burden, but also so that I could protect the facade that I believed was better, the facade that I was a perfect kid with no problems. I feared that if I revealed who I thought I was, that others, including many in this church, would stop loving me, disown me, think badly of my family, and treat me the same as I saw them treat the rest of the gay community, with disgust and contempt, even though this sin was something that I hated myself. Isolate, though, is what Satan wants all sinners to do. Isolate themselves and not be able to seek help. I languished in self-hatred, depression, fear, and anger at myself and at God. I believe what Scripture said, that homosexuality is wrong. But God still did not remove the temptation from my mind, nor has he yet done so. I truly once believed that I would live my life, die alone, and the word gay would be written on my soul. 
and I will be barred from heaven. This mindset went on for almost eight years before I revealed my struggle. This was only possible because of the love of those who I told had for me. Love that was not dependent on my success or failures, but unconditional. I am now able to separate the temptation from the sin. I realize that my temptation does not define me. My identity is in Christ. I truly believe what God says to Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, through Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. I now trust God to take care of my needs as well as correct my desires, but he has not yet done so. I have been shown many times in other areas the wonder of his timing, so I do not doubt that he has a plan to use my struggle for the benefits of his kingdom. And believe me, the struggle has only gotten worse since I have told people and sought help. Satan had me in a web of lies for years, and I sat there not fighting back because I thought the battle was already lost. But now that I know God has won, And that I can claim that victory. The devil has pursued me with all vigor and malice, throwing new complications, fears, and doubt into my life. Many times I have given in to temptation, throwing myself back into a sea of doubt and self-hatred, questioning my loyalty to Christ. If I want to be rid of this desire in my heart, why does a part of me still want it? If a part of me wants to be sold out for Christ, why does the other keep going back to the vomit? It is only my assurance that Christ is my only Savior and my only help that keeps me going. Romans 7 comes to mind. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Can we clap for this brave friend? I have another testimony from uh, a friend who's in Christian ministry with the same struggle, now married. And I'm going to post both of these testimonies on our uh, Facebook page so you can read them and share them. Some of you will hear this message and you'll be upset with me because you think I'm being too truthfully hard. Some of you will hear this message and be upset with me because you think I'm being too gracefully soft. And on my worst days, I really care a lot about whether or not people like me. But on my best days, I'm mostly concerned with whether or not I'm loving people. And as a preacher, I believe I'm called not just to love God with my words, but to love people with my words, you in here and those out there. So whether or not my words, in your opinion, were hard or soft, truth or grace, they've come out of a heart of love for you. I just want you to know that. So back to Jay, that guy who sat across from me in my office, asking me what I think of his sexuality, telling me that because he believes God made him gay, he's been able to escape the shame that led to his drug addiction. Pastor Lenny, what do you think? 
Well, like I said, I brought him back to the garden. I told him a few other things. I apologize that the church has so often made homosexuality out to be the worst sin because many of us don't struggle with it. I apologize for that. And I told him that his sexuality cannot separate him from the love of God which is in Christ. I told him that too. And I told him that while I cannot offer my endorsement, I can offer my friendship. And I said, I said, Jay, I want you to know whether you agree with me or not, I love you. And I said, can you say the same to me? <laughs> and he said, Pastor Lenny, I hope you'll still officiate my funeral someday. I gave him a hug and I said, absolutely, I will. Absolutely. All of us, most of us, I should say, in this room have been in some way broken by sex. We've experienced the corruption of creation's gift of sex, somehow, some way. And all of us, I suspect, have not been perfect when it comes to sexual purity. I know I haven't been. And I want us just to, instead of going right into the Q&A and talking to each other, which is valuable, I really feel like after this message, we need to talk to God. And so the altar's open for you to come and pray, pray for sexual purity, pray for your children and your grandchildren that they would experience great sex someday according to God's word, not the world. So let's pray together. We'll open us up in prayer and then we're just going to have a time of prayer as we sing together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for the gift of sex. Thank you for making us with that capacity. You didn't have to, but you did. Thank you. God, forgive me. Forgive us for our warped perspectives and our warped practices when it comes to sex. Give us your grace to live victoriously. Your grace is sufficient for your powers made perfect in weakness. So our brother reminded us. May we walk in that strength. You can be seated for just a couple minutes. The long-winded preacher went long, and so we'll have just a few questions and then maybe tackle some others uh, on Facebook and post yes, that. Yes, And I so. promise, since I've used the word sex about a hundred times in that <laughs> sermon, I will not use the word uh, for the rest of my months with you, okay? And if I do, <laughs> Pastor Jared will buy you lunch. I'm so. still trying to figure out why you asked me to be here. <laughs> So, he drew anyway, a short straw. first question. If sex has been a part of a dating relationship for a long period of time, how can we break that cycle, especially if marriage is in the future? Just bring the future marriage up closer to the present. I mean, that's real. I've done that with a lot of couples who... Uh, I think it surprises those of us who've been in the church a while that there is the perception among uh, new Christians um, that that if you love someone, uh, if you're committed as boyfriend and girlfriend, or you're engaged even, um, or you're living together, that sex is totally fine. And 
Again, I would, I would contend that the, the greatest sex is when, you are, when, you've, when you've made a promise. There's no promise. You're leasing with an option to buy when you're living together. You can buy or back out. There is no promise there. And so, uh, uh, I mean, there's a financial, there's a financial arrangement, really, because you share that I have family members who are in that boat who, who live together for finances, and they're going to get married three years from now. And I, I just, I mean, the best, it can be okay sex, maybe, or, or good sex, but it's not going to be great because it's not sanctioned by the God uh, who came up with the idea of sex in the first place. God only blesses what God ordains, and he blesses sex in the context of marriage between two people who have made a lifelong covenant to love each other no matter what. That's what God blesses. So if, if you want to be blessed, sorry, I'm talking too much. I've talked enough, okay. but if you want to be blessed, just get married. I'll marry you. If you're living together and want to get married, I'll marry you. We'll do 37 sessions of premarital counseling, but I'll marry you. <laughs> I think on the flip side, I agree with you, but I would also ask the question, like, is the sex the reason we're together? Right? No. That could have drawn us together in a way, and like maybe we need to have a hard discussion. But yeah. I agree with you. So. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, sexual, sexual oneness, right? So God made two to become one flesh, sexually and physically. But that's only that's only indicative of the emotional and spiritual oneness right. that that couple's longing for. And you can't do that overnight. You can't lease with an option to buy. You got to mm-hmm. be all in yep. on that. Yep. Second question. How can we teach people that they're still worthy to be loved even though they have an STD or unplanned pregnancy? Oh, totally. I mean, you are loved no matter what in the eyes of the God who made you and knows you. And like I said, you, like in, a, in, a, in a marriage, you're going to discover all kinds of weird things about your spouse, the ugly birthmark she has on her leg and, and, and the snoring he has. I mean, and, and you... And so God discovers all kinds of stuff about us. God sees right through us. I love that verse. Jesus knows what's in a person. And yet, he knows everything about me and yet still loves me. So there's, no, there's nothing in you, either height nor depth, nor wrinkles or flaws or STDs or, or odd perversions that are going to keep you from the love of God in Christ period. You want to you jump on that? I mean, I would just go back to the sort of thing, how you were pointing out how we have like taboo on sexual sins compared to the fact that there's all these other sins that we don't just ignore and don't put on the same playing field and say, oh, well, those aren't that bad. Yes, they are. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> when you are married, does sex always have to be to conceive? No. <laughs> That's my quick answer. <laughs> Unless you're Catholic. I, I grew up Catholic, so like, I don't, know, I don't know if the Catholic Church still teaches this, but um, there's a lot of Catholic kids out there. Church growth for the Catholics, that's it. I mean, that's it right there. Okay, you want to do one more? Yeah. Does the Bible have anything to say about transgenderism? Oh, I knew that was going to come up. First, let me say, uh, my heart breaks for someone who is stuck in a body they don't feel like belongs to them. So my heart aches for the transgendered person. Um, But at the same time, I would say, uh, your identity is not your gender, ultimately. 
right? So, I mean, we all have a gender, but I think we make too much a deal out of our sexuality, out of our gender. That's just a small part of who we really are in Christ. And so, um, I don't know if the Bible speaks to it uh, off the top of my head because I don't know that it was an issue back then. I, I really don't. I mean, men were uh, <laughs> men were emasculated at times to uh, as slaves. So um, maybe that's trans- as transgendered as the Bible gets. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I would just go back to, I remember sitting in theology class and the professor just talking about, we've wrapped up the concept of identity so tightly into gender now that we believe, okay, well, if that's, I have to embrace that. I have, no, we have to embrace that we're children of God, right? Because there's a day coming where male and female isn't even going to matter to that extent as much as it is that I'm a creation of God and I'm saved by him. Right. 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 Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll try to get to some of these other ones. Yeah, there are many more questions, so we're going to have a midweek response to that.